You're listening to Hear This Idea, a podcast showcasing new thinking from top academics at the University of Cambridge and beyond. In this episode, we talk to Tad's Chieski Holmes. Tad's is an undergraduate economist at St. John's College, Cambridge, and is currently writing his dissertation on how behavioral economics can help explain patterns in gym membership. We begin by discussing what economics assumes by rationality and how behavioral economics shows this may not always be realistic. Listeners familiar with these concepts may wish to skip ahead. We then discussed the seminal paper by Della Vigna and Malmendia on how people are, quote, paying not to go to the gym, how their evidence compares to his own, and how he's looking to develop this phenomenon further. We then explore what implications behavioral economics has for public health policy, such as vaccinations and medication adherence, as well as nudges more generally. I think this is a really interesting snapshot of what research in behavioral economics looks like and all the complications that come with it. So without any further ado, here's the episode. So we're going to talk about behavioural economics yes. as applied to gym membership. This is what I've been working on, indeed. Right. Um, I think it would be useful just to begin uh, explaining how behavioural economics came about, because it's quite a recent development, right? Mm-hmm. So what was in place before, and why was there a need for something like behavioural economics? So as far as I'm aware, behavioural economics mostly stemmed from... Daniel uh, Kahneman's work, sort of late 70s, early 80s, where it's just very, it's, I guess it seems obvious now, but observations that people don't behave like rational agents in certain contexts. So I think the, the, the first thing that sort of popped up is things like uh, prospect theory, where it's basically people misunderstanding, or not misunderstanding, but overweighting high and low probabilities. So why do people uh, buy lottery tickets when their chances of winning the lottery are so low that the expected value is below the price of a lottery ticket. Well, it's because people think the with the huge payoff of a lottery, they sort of um, don't put enough weight on the fact that the probabilities are so low. Um, so that, that that's something that's uh, how I think it first developed. Other things I observed back then are things like planning fallacy. People don't... Um, Tend to they t- they tend to underestimate stochastic shocks, i.e. they don't plan for uh, things happening in the future that could um, put a strain on their schedules. So it's something that happens a lot of academics, at least, is that they take on a lot of tasks and make themselves very busy, thinking that their future is going to be less busy than it is. But they always forget that other things always come along to make your life mm. very busy. Um, I think that's the the early developments. It's basically, you know, the rational agent model that we use, which is very useful in the sense that it makes modeling very easy and it makes it very easy to make a, a representative agent. But it's, um, it, it, it's definitely developed out of a, a lack of uh, sort of e- how economics is dealt with non-rational agents. I think it might be worth backing up a bit and explaining what rationality means in this context Indeed. because it has quite a specific meaning in economics. Mm. So in, in at the most basic level, it's usually uh, defined from preferences. So if you have people that have a choice between certain uh, goods or actions that they're going to take, um, they look at the, um, the... You can sort of order what you consume or do and how much like uh, how much you value it um, and this is then made to create sort of utility functions these sort of numerical representations of what people prefer to do but at the basic level is like do you prefer apples to oranges if you prefer apples to oranges you're more likely to spend a bit more money on apples than oranges and then just scaling that up over basically everything that people do and with those utility functions you Mathematically, assume people maximize their utility. I, they, they choose the things that they most prefer, and the and the way that we can sort of look at how people do this is through like the through money, through how much people are willing to spend. So this is part of revealed preference. So um, people will uh, spend if people spend more money on one good than another good, you can assume that they value that good more, and going to sort of rationality side of things is given this sort of axiomatic approach you assume that people are rational in in maximizing their personal utility but this is 
where yeah but then where behavioral comes in is that it doesn't it's not it's apparent in some situations that people aren't maximizing their utility like like in this example of lottery tickets the expected value is lower the 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 expected value of the lottery is less than how much people are paying for it so this doesn't quite match up with that original um sort of rational behavior that we assume um, ju- just before we delve more into like the behavioral side of it, I think one thing that's useful to clarify as well, mm. traditional economics doesn't assume what those pe- what those individual preferences are, mm. just that people will maximize according to those preferences. So if I had a huge preference for burning all of my money, mm. that would be perfectly consistent with the rational agent. Indeed. And what behavioral economics is criticizing is not necessarily that people are... Um, you know, have altruistic preferences and all of that, that's all perfectly Mm, consistent. mm. It's more that people don't always um, act coherently um, as we we would kind of expect. Indeed. So, yeah, it's going back to the models, I suppose. You just expect... The models suggest people behave one way, but then what we observe is just not in line with what the models necessarily predict. And um, where does the kind of idea of a homo economicus kind of play into all of that? I think homo economicus is... I guess I'm not sure what the actual origination of the term is, but I would, I, what I would imagine is it's a good way of criticizing um, economic theory and, and the rational agent is to make is to make a new branding of uh, of something that's non-human, as this the, the characterization of the rational agent is a sort of robotic, all-knowing, uh, maximizing figure, and it sort of loses the uh, the nuances of individual behavior, which I guess is what other fields are trying to uh, look into yeah. um so if when we now look at behavioral economics and it's kind of criticism of that homo mm. economicus uh, i understand it kind of falls into three general branches yes. um, of what it's criticizing do you care to kind of explain what, what so those are? this this is from that rabin 2002 paper it's a very good overview of what economics is looking into um and you know if you sort of present standard models of utility maximization as well, first of all, people maximize according to some sort of utility function. Um, people make some sort of um, have some sort of beliefs about like uh, probabilities or future values that people uh, of or probabilities of events happening or how much things are go- how much they're going to like things in the future. And they have these preferences, as we talked about before, these quite rational ordering of different actions and goods that you would like to consume and uh, and then picking the best of those given your sort of constraints like a budget constraint or um, a certain amount of income from work and such so in terms of how we can sort of break down that um, sort of maximizing utility maximizing model is that we can look into these non-standard preferences so uh, the, the one that I've been looking into mostly is uh, time preferences which are different from the, nat- the standard models so the standard models usually use something called like an exponential discounter so uh, mathematically this is done by like a, a delta term that's placed on each time period in the future which then basically means that in, in a consistent manner people prefer consuming things in the future less than they prefer to consume it now so we it accounts for What's quite intuitive is that people are, have this sort of uh, preference for consuming things in the present because people are not necessarily very patient. Um, but where behavioral economics makes a slight addition is this present bias term. So it's these um, the, these time inconsistent pre- preferences. These uh, I think they're in the literature they're sort of quasi hyperbolic <laughs> preferences. Um, but all that does is just, in the, in the models at least, is just add this extra beta term um, on future utilities, which discounts them f- further just based on whether they're now or in the future. So what that might change in terms of the, the preference structures is in a consistent preference structure, you may say, I prefer something now to compared to in one month's time, and in one month's time, I prefer to consume it then compared to two months' time. But what that beta term might encapsulate is I prefer to consume something now compared to one month's time but I might be quite indifferent between one month and two months time Mm. so actually the extent to which you discount in the future will um, maybe slightly different to how you act in the present 
Uh, do, do you know an example of that, like in, in real life? In, in the work I've been doing, it's, it's uh, procrastination is one good thing. Um, you, you just don't want to do it now. You mm. want to do it sometime in the future. Okay, yeah. Right now, you just don't want to, you, you want to defer it. Or you have this uh, sort of inner uh, drive to n- not <laughs> do something <laughs> right yeah. now. And you just you know you want to do it later, just not now. And that's yeah. all it, it, it captures. Um, and that comes into sort of the work with like gym cancellations later. It's that yeah. sort of procrastination. Okay, cool. Yeah, that makes mm. a, lot, a lot of intuitive sense. So for example, if I have some homework due, I don't care if I do it tomorrow or in a week's time, I just don't want to yeah, do it Yeah, you just don't want to do it right, right now. now. Yeah, and that's, that, well, well, that's what that present bias term usually encapsulates mm. in the model. Mm. Oh, cool. Um, so that's kind of non-standard preferences. Uh, what other critiques does behavioral economics make? So non-standard beliefs is a good one. So... Um, well standard beliefs would be again you you take all information and then update your priors according to Bayes rule so if you had a if you had some sort of prior belief about um, the the likelihood of an event happening and then you get new information you very mathematically update your your set of beliefs to to match that but we know that people um, don't necessarily have very good sort of expectations of probabilities um, something like yeah overconfidence is a is a, is a big one so um, what in terms of gym memberships something some of the stuff I've looked into is uh, people will definitely think that they're going to go to the gym more than <laughs> they actually do uh, another good example is indeed if if you ask people how good a driver they are they will naturally say that they're above average more than 50% of the time. <laughs> um, so in the US, it's the worst, I believe. In some con- some countries, it's not as bad as the US, but the US, um, it seems to be around 90% of people think that they're above average. Um, but this is quite consistent. We're looking into other countries as well. Mm, people, yeah. um, apparently, this decreases as, um, with equality within a country, the amount that people overestimate how good a driver they really? are decreases. That seems to be some sort of association. <laughs> um, so that's an interesting one. Um, yeah, going back to um, uh, lottery tickets again. Again, um, people will over or overweight small probabilities, thinking that they're more likely to occur. So if you take uh, and usually associated with those large payoffs. Um, mm which is why people will tend to take the long shot for lotteries. So behavioural economics wants to explain why we deviate in all these different ways from mm. the kind of homo economicus mm. of classical economics. But presumably this really matters because economics feeds into policymaking, right? For sure. So could you give an example of some kind of policy that is informed by this kind of old view mm. that on something like behavioral economics turns out to be quite harmful. Indeed, I can't, I've got one that comes to mind, which is maybe um, like, not necessarily in the sense that an old policy was incorrect and has been corrected, but I can definitely think think of lines of reasoning, which have meant that policies have not been in place or the regulations haven't been put in place because you would just assume people will behave correctly and one, the, again, back to the work I've done, it's just like um, with gym memberships or prescription model, uh, subscription models, this can be also for uh, buying prescription drugs, there's lots of subscription models that come in now, is that you make things easier to sign up to than they are you to cancel. And this doesn't, for a rational agent, this shouldn't matter. People will be like, if, if, it's, if it's worth cancelling, people will do it, they'll find the the right uh, thing to cancel, they'll make the phone call and it'll be fine. But it, with behavioral, better behavioral understandings of what people do when they're presented with this sludge, this sort of thing that make it really difficult to cancel, it does have a much greater effect of playing to sort of people's biases to stop them from canceling, even though you could, the companies can stand back and be like, actually they can cancel if they want to, but in reality, they're making it very difficult with a negative welfare effect as a result. Cool. So that's probably a good point to start talking about your own work. Yeah. So you had an idea to use gym memberships to test 
people's yeah. attitudes towards uh, their future behavior and um, probabilities. So could you explain why that could be interesting and how you went about doing it? So unfortunately, it wasn't my idea. <laughs> this was the whole point of this was because it wasn't my idea. It was someone else's idea. <laughs> it was um, Della Vigna and Malmendia was sort of the big first big paper uh, I, that I know of, at least, to study gym membership attendances and um, and their cancellation behaviors. That was back in published in two thousand and six, but this work was ongoing from earlier because their data set was from 97 to 2000 I believe um, this was based in the Boston metropolitan area and yeah the, what they did was look at exactly the rational agent model and make some predictions as to what we would expect gym members to do and then look at the data and see what do they actually do and then make some suggestions as to, as to plausible models or reasons why people aren't behaving as rational agents. Um, so the, they had eight, they had eight uh, observations and seven predictions from the rational agents model. Um, the, the ones that I was able to look into were, um, just kind of pull them up, is the, so first thing you'd expect was, yeah, price per expected attendance. Um, would be less than the the day pass prices people could pay for the gym. So if you're the comparison, yeah. So the comparisons were made between the different contracts of gyms that they had um, in their sample. Where basically they had these annual day uh, annual passes, which or annual memberships, um, where you pay up front and then you just have a membership for a year and there's no automatic renewal. Once it finishes, it finishes and you have to pay for it again. The other one was the monthly memberships were automatically renewed, uh, automatically renewed. So they just take money from people's accounts and um, until they cancelled it. And the third thing is that they did, they did offer day passes at these gyms, and um, so people could just turn up and buy one or like ten day passes uh, instead of a gym membership. So you'd expect that people buying gym memberships would weigh up these contracts that's available to them and then decide that, okay, if, if the gym membership is the most valuable to me, I'll get that, and that should therefore, the, the price per attendance should be less than the day pass prices. So just to give like a really easy kind of example, if the monthly pass costs $10 and the daily pass costs $1, yeah. I go to the gym less than 10 times, I should get the daily pass, yeah. and if I go to the gym more than ten times, yeah. I should get them within a given pass. month. Exactly. Yeah. So that's the that's the exact comparison you make. I think the um, the day passes cost costed ten dollars, and the monthly passes, the very basic without any discounts, was like seventy dollars. Mm. So to make that monthly gym membership worthwhile, they had to go around seven times a month. Um, but obviously, this is not what we see, <laughs> <laughs> which is interesting. The average in the sample is around. Uh, 4.5 attendances a month, so maybe once a week. But these are quite hefty, expensive um, gym memberships, especially when there's day passes available. That would have been cheaper mm. as an alternative for a majority of the sample. Um, the other thing that they looked into was, uh, which they couldn't test directly from the data, they had to do a few surveys, but um, it was looking at rational expectations. So they asked people who were gym members in a setting, not, not somewhere in like a, a mall nearby, um, how much they expected to go to the gym in a given month, um, as well as a few other questions. And the, yeah, how much people thought they would go to the gym was incredibly high compared to the average of the sample. So people expected to go nine or 10 times a month, so that's around twice a week, um, which is, yeah, more than about double what people actually did. The, the other thing that was interesting was the cancellation lags within the sample. So it's basically the, the, the period of time between people like not, not attending the gym or having like a, a less than worthwhile gym membership where they're only going maybe once or twice a month, something like that, and uh, how long it takes them to cancel based on the fact that um, they could be saving money with day passes. And they, they just end up being some months or long, I think this average for their sample was two to three months, and that cost people between sort of 100 and $150, mm. 
which is not ne like negligible money. That's quite a lot just because people weren't putting in the effort in sooner to cancel their gym memberships. But obviously that's an average. So for some people, it's going to be much, much higher yeah. as well. Um, and it ends up costing a lot of money, which is something I also found in my sample. And yeah, average gym member. So a more subtle point they did, what they touched on was average average attendance per month should increase for the sample over time because the people who are dropping out of the sample should be the lowest attending gym memberships. The lowest attending gym memberships should have the least worthwhile gym, gym members. Uh, yeah, the, yeah, the least least worthwhile memberships, but. Um, you actually see the average attendance over time falling as you see attrition of the sample, mm. which basically suggests that it's not the highest attenders that are dropping out the sample. It's actually, um, it's not the lowest attenders dropping out the samples, it's actually it's higher attenders that are dropping out, um, which is interesting. So it suggests there's some persistence um, within the lower attenders with the least valuable gym memberships which again it's not something we would, we would expect from some rational agents so if i understand it right it's not just that people are fooled initially realize mm. they're wrong and drop out it's that yeah. they're consistently yeah. acting in some way kind of irrationally yeah so they just have these like non-worthwhile gym memberships for a long period of time they don't mm. cancel and they and the ones that are um not cancelling tend to be the lower attenders as well yeah. so it's just not what we would expect from the, the rational the rational agent um, basically all these behaviors you're seeing yeah people could be getting day passes but they're not um, they not forecasting their attendance very well uh, the cancellation lags should be quite short once pe people should realize quite quickly um, if they're not going to the gym or have a less than worthwhile gym membership and make the effort to cancel and switch the day pass prices um, and yeah, we, we would have expected those low attenders to fall out the sample, but mm. that's precisely what they didn't find, um, which is interesting. So that was suggestive. Um, uh, yeah, so that, that was suggestive for a certain uh, type of behavior, which is basically going back to the types of modifications we can make to the standard model is um, non-standard maximization behavior. So the idea is not only do people have these present bias terms, like we talked about where people procrastinate, even given people procrastinate, people might underestimate how much they procrastinate in the future. So they actually think that their future selves are going to be more on it and <laughs> cancel their gym memberships. Yeah. And they underestimate how much they procrastinate in the future. Yeah. So there's these like deferrals of cancellations um, well, this is the theory, at least, that people defer cancellations because they think they'll just they'll be better at doing it in the future. Mm. But then that keeps reoccurring until some point the costs ramp up high enough that people actually make the final effort to mm. that, cancel. That makes a lot of intuitive sense. Makes a lot of intuitive yeah. sense, indeed. But there's also some other subtle things that people do, which which you can find online, like um, on forums where people are getting very angry at the <laughs> gym companies where they're... The, in, in America, it's not so much in, in the UK, I don't think, but in America, you have to, you can't just cancel online. Mm. You tend to have to write a letter to the head office yeah. to formally request the cancellation, or you have to visit in person to a, uh, a gym to be like, I want to cancel my gym membership, which obviously means that the costs of canceling are much higher in the US than perhaps in the UK. Mm. Um, and that's something, that the fact to consider because it, people may not actually expect that cost because people may expect it to be quite easy. They probably mm. expect it to be a uh, just a phone call or a simple um, cancellation link on the website, but actually it ends up being a lot of uh, effort. And this is something that people might not account for. So again, when people are thinking about when they'll cancel, they'll be like, oh, it's fine. I'll just allocate 10 minutes of my time on uh, Friday afternoon and I'll just make that effort mm. to cancel. And it finally comes around and they, they call up the helpline and they realize, oh, I you can't cancel on the phone. You have to go to the gym in person. And that basically means like, oh, I've got a busy weekend and I've got work next week. I can't necessarily make that time. And that's just something that people didn't expect initially, mm. which then leads to additional delays. And this is something that is presented as a, another possible argument. Or it's probably possible that both these things are happening at the same time. But 
it, it's just hard to extract that behavior from the data. Um, and I don't think there are any uh, models for it. Yeah. But, so it, it may be that people are procrastinating intuitively like that, but there may be a selection who are just delaying because they didn't actually know how hard it is to cancel as well. Yeah, so, so two kind of components. One mm. kind of being irrational because you're overestimating how much benefit you'll get in the future and you know uh you know i wasn't really on it january but come february yeah i'll use the gym a lot more That's and then you, yeah come march you just go okay february mm. wasn't really my month but now i'll really be on it yeah and then on the other hand people are also underestimating the costs of yeah. actually cancelling the gym exactly membership. exactly that's the, uh, yeah, that, that's quite a big one actually that they don't necessarily address is the fact that people don't necessarily um adjust their expectations of how much they're going to go to the gym even mm. after they've had a gym membership yeah for um a, a couple of months so you this is something else that you expect you know the rational agent to do it would be to update their expectations over time but mm. there have been further not this paper but uh, other papers on sort of habits and gym memberships where people will still overestimate how much they're gonna go even with prior months of attendances where they're like they didn't go very much at all yeah. they're still quite optimistic <laughs> um so it may even be that people never even even though they've had less than worthwhile gym memberships um they may still not attend to intend to cancel which yeah. is also very hard to extract from the data there's a lot of limitations i think um to these sort of natural experiments in a way because you you, you have a lot of um impersonal anonymized data but you don't there's a lot of dynamics which are hard to extract because they're all sort of overlapping at the same time can i um just ask for those people who don't know what is a natural experiment as compared to for instance a that's a good question control trial or something like that so that's uh going into there's, there's sort of different levels of scale and controls in the experiments we do in economics um, natural experiments tends to be just um, extracting a lot of data from a, uh, from what what we observe normally. So this could be like macroeconomic data, like GDP over time, or um, and then looking for specific dynamics after like the stock market crash and how that affects going on going forwards. And this is what a lot of econometrics tries to do is like in the absence of being able to control variables how can we extract sort of causal effects of certain things so this is more what the gym data is it's just you know we have a lot of data um, on different gym memberships and how much they're going to the gym but then how can we uh, extract behaviors from that um, using econometric analysis in this case, it's quite simple because we have these contracts. We have a given set of contracts that people can uh, purchase for their memberships. And you can just compare, you know, the, the monetary value of their, their gym memberships compared to what they could be paying by just not having a gym membership. Um, so that's where it becomes a bit easier in this case. Um, but going down to more like lower level stuff would be like randomized controlled trials where you know, you set up a control group which, you know, they just behave normally and then a, a treatment group where you provide them some sort of intervention and then you, you compare the two groups to see how the intervention affects the treatment group. So um, one example in the gym world is like uh, you give a control group that is behaving normally while the treatment group is you give the monetary incentives to go to the gym. And then you study sort of the longer term impacts of uh, these monetary incentives. So do the monetary incentives somehow induce some sort of habit formation where people create a routine of going to the gym? And then does that lead to like a longer persistence and higher attendance after you've stopped giving monetary incentives? But also the monetary incentives themselves, seeing how much, you know, how much does attendance actually increase just by giving people a bit of money to go to the gym? That's sort of more RCT, randomized control trial level. And then you can get down to proper lab settings where you know everything's controlled. You have, you have um, participants come in to play a very like set game uh, with usually some sort of gambling games where there's money on the line and there's sort of having to, uh, some probabilities involved in this game. You might be playing against another participant and um, everything's controlled 
and you just have the participant making decisions um, based on a very like set up um, gambling game of some sort. Is there a worry that because it's so controlled, people are mm. too aware of that, and so their behaviour will be different to what That's otherwise? Definitely, think? you have to be so careful in your considerations because it um oh, what's it called Hawthorne effect, I believe, is where where you um, just by the setup of the game you somehow impose a, a behavior on your participants. So uh, in, in the way you set up a game or a study, um, the participants may try and judge how much or what behavior you're trying to extract. And they'd be like, they may want to live up to your expectations of what you're trying to do. And they'd be like, okay, I'm gonna be a good participant. I'm gonna do what they think I should be doing. And that that just ruins the effect of the study because that's not what you want them to do. You want to see what they would do in a more uh, naturally. Um, as a very big consideration, and it's quite interesting what people would do to try and remove these effects of on, in a lab setting. But in reality, you probably just cannot remove them, but just be aware of them. And I guess uh, another problem with kind of lab experiments is that it attracts a much smaller kind of sample of people oh, to yeah. investigate. Because mm. most of these are done at university. Definitely. I imagine you also get a certain type kind of being w even willing to participate. Yeah, it's true. Like, um, it, it just becomes a practica practical issue where there's a, a vast pool of, of uh, participants who are willing to take a slightly smaller sum, sum of money to take time out of their day and that is students in the university um even i i had to do in, in my time at caltech um i took part in two little uh, sort of more uh, neuroeconomics experiments to putting on eeg caps to measure my brain waves and um and um another one doing like eye tracking in a gambling game um Definitely, it's, it's, it's external validity of these results is definitely questionable. Um, but uh, I guess the you know people running these experiments are usually quite aware of it, and it's I think when when you do them, um, the results are quite suggestive as to certain behaviours you may you may um, see. But I think uh, I think behavioral economists are quite keen to get these experiments done elsewhere and they're always quite excited when like a sample can open up in another country um, or like propositions to do things in like more developing countries like in Tanzania um, they're quite willing to see whether these uh, studies replicate in other environments so I think it's definitely considered for sure Okay, so we've kind of talked about uh, the, the paper that Della Vigna and Mal Mendia uh, mm. did back in 2006. So what was it that you kind of found uh, when you tried to replicate their results? Yeah, so in my, in my task to replicate their results, it was actually quite, they did, well, it seems like they did quite well in my books. Um, my, my data set was completely different sample from a wider set of gyms and gym members around the US. So whilst, while theirs were quite, uh, centralized around the Boston area. Uh, mine were basically just from mostly California, but smattered elsewhere as well. And I also found very similar things. So 38% uh, of my sample could have saved money by spent by buying uh, gym membership by paying day pass prices rather than having gym memberships. Now there is also there's a caveat to that result because what that doesn't show is that. Are day passes really available to the people that are paid gym memberships? And I think this is something that's probably evolved, but possibly because of the Delvinia Malmendia paper, where I can't say that for certain, but gyms are very much less willing to offer day pass prices nowadays. <laughs> and I think uh, my, my thinking is, and it's not I haven't looked into this enough, but it would seem reasonable that people would have seen that study and the gyms would have seen that study and realized Ah, uh, yeah. This might mean that people will try to act like rational agents mm. and not buy gym memberships anymore. Um, so they do they do offer day pass prices, but they make it very hard to figure that out. Um, they don't advertise it on their websites anymore, but if you ask them, they will give them to you. Um, so that's a big caveat to that result is that actually it, the the contracts people face now are not necessarily the same as they were back in two thousand. And um, 
the, it's still indicative that people have very low value gym memberships, mm. but it's now um, less. In um, it, it doesn't necessarily demonstrate the same irrationality as it did before, because of the additional effort it requires to actually acquire day pass prices. Um, so at least, but it's still interesting because when you look at sort of the the distribution of how much people pay in their their gym attendances, so how much the average gym attendance costs, so i.e. take their monthly gym attendance, um, gym membership costs and divide it by their attendances, you know, there's some very low attendance still. Mm. There's still people in the sample that um, spend like more maybe $100 per attendance because they only go twice or once every two months or something like that. <laughs> um, so although the figure is now possibly a bit less sexy than before and it's not quite as like pow um, in your face as the, the Delavinia uh, result, there's st much of the same behaviors I think are still demonstrated. Um, I ran my own survey as well at Caltech to um, elicit rational expectations mm. and very similar results actually um in in the survey sample there's only 36 so you gotta take a pinch of salt but it seems to be that people always have non-zero expectations of going to the gym or like most people have non-zero expectations some people in my in, in the survey were like yeah i'm not gonna go <laughs> <laughs> but a lot most people were quite optimistic that they're gonna go like uh three times a week and i think that for a student that seems like quite a a good figure yeah um, but in reality you know work comes along and the actual attendance data the modal groups are sort of zero to one times a week which again makes sense that people still a lot of people just don't go to the gym some people still make the effort but it's yeah. much less than they thought it was going to be uh, and that's probably like classic sort of planning fallacy type things being shown there and yeah overall it seemed to be that people overestimated their attendance by around seven times a month so two times a week-ish. Um, so that, that was interesting to, to see again that actually, the, and going back to well, are these weird people because they're Caltech, yeah. their survey data was so similar to the Delavinia um, uh, survey data because they are in the Delavinia Malmendia paper, they asked a question basically to show like presented and updated expectations. Do people... Um, do people pick the rational option? And they do this through a question of just being like, uh, the gym membership costs $70 and a day pass costs $10. Mm. Last month, you went five times to the gym and you're, you're expecting this to carry forward um, to the next month. Do you buy the day pass or the gym membership? And obviously the response you, want to, you would expect to see is people be like, ah, yes, Five times 10, 50, that's less than 70. I should go with the day passes. Yeah, yeah. And both my sample and the Delavinia sample is actually 70 30 split. 70% would go for the day pass prices, but still 30% that went for the gym <laughs> membership, even though they've been told, like, yeah. you went five times last month and you're expecting that to go forward. Mm. Now, what's what, what, what exactly is going on there is. Mm. Uh, not quite sure. Um, are people still over optimistic in within this um, this scenario? Um, possibly, but it, I think it was interesting at least that some people still went with the, the higher price option, um, and that they were so similar um, within a similar sample size as well. So that, yeah, that's something that came up. Is there some explanation of why people still went for the higher price option? Because even though maybe they knew that they wouldn't go enough to justify that extra cost, there's something about paying too much that motivated them to go in the first place. That's Well, yeah, that's definitely a, a, a big reason why people get gym memberships, I think. Um, that th it's like a commitment device. You know, I'm going to punish myself to going. Um, <laughs> and I, never, I don't think it works. Um, but no, I th the problem is it's, it's anonymized data. I wish I could ask the people and be like, why did you choose the uh, the higher price one? Um, but I'm not quite sure. I think that's one. There's one. There's one potential explanation that people are like, yes, we're not going enough, and uh, 
uh, and I should be going more, so I'll buy the, the, the gym membership. The other one might just be, it's less effort having a gym membership. I don't have to pay every time mm, I go, because yeah. there is a cost there. That cost is quite small, but it might be enough for where people are like, I don't want to bother having to put my chip and pin in every time I go mm. or speak to someone. <laughs> uh, which is that's possibly very valid yeah. um, so there's, there's, a, there's actually a lot going on in that sense um, but I couldn't I couldn't say for certain why why that result has occurred yeah um, but it's an interesting one at least yeah um, and kind of uh, back to your findings so yes. uh, we've talked about um, daily prices versus monthly Indeed. prices and um, forecast kind of expectations. Yeah. What, what else did you find? We also found yeah huge cancellation lags. Um, I think my sample has got more sort of heterogeneity and behaviors than the original Delavinia Mamendia sample. Um, so I think I, I see, I've seen much bigger cancellation lags than they possibly saw where I have one person in my sample and the maximum of my range. Mm. Um, delayed five and a half years <laughs> um, between not, not their final attendance and actually cancelling their gym membership mm. um, that's quite damning because obviously something's going on there now this is us this this is but this is to the point where you know even the procrastination argument falls yeah, apart. Yeah. this is someone who must have just forgotten yeah they're not thinking about it every day being like ah saturday that's the day yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but there's, there's a huge range of people, 36% of my sample where they had like greater than a month cancellation lags. So yeah. There was at least a month where they didn't go um, before they decided to cancel. Yeah, yeah. And again, it, 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 at least it demonstrates that people, there are a lot of people not being rational in that sample. Although a lot of them were very on it, a lot of the sample canceled or attended right up to the point of cancellation, mm. uh, there were also some significant lags in there which Again, rational agents doesn't uh, explain. Um, we saw a similar thing with the sample, the attendance with attrition. So people falling out of the sample weren't the lowest attenders. It was the higher attenders. And uh, again, quite damning. The, the median attendance in month 11 and 12 of um, after signing up was less or zero. So that means that um, 11 months and 12 months after the um, a gym member had signed up, the the median attendance was, so over 50% of the sample had zero attendances recorded mm. in month 11 and 12. Wow. Which is interesting. So again, there's it, a huge attendance attrition over time. People just seem to stop going, but yeah. they, again, they don't cancel. Um, and then the final thing, which was similar to what the Delavinia and Malmendia found, is that there's this correlation between price per attendance and cancellation lags. So the people who had the least worthwhile gym memberships, i.e. the highest price per attendance, um, were also more, seemed to be correlated with higher cancellation lags. So that was suggestive that you know, there's, some, there's a differentiation between sort of a naive agent and the sophisticated agent. Mm. So the, the sophisticated agent would be more rational, and they would have they they have a gym membership that's more uh, worthwhile, as in they go a lot, and um, they really get bang for their buck. But once it stops being the case, they cancel quite quickly. While um, the naive agent um, may not go very much at all and have quite low um, attendance and high price per attendance, and they're also more likely to leave the gym membership running mm. before cancelling and have a greater lag um, and that was like it, again it's indicative of these sort of things that are going on although it can't necessarily pinpoint where people are being naive and sophisticated it shows that there's this sort of heterogeneity in there okay that's that's really interesting actually because that's really i guess kind of distinguishing between, as you kind of said, the naive and the mm. more homo economicus mm. kind of people. Do you have any guess as to what part of your sample can be described as rational and what uh, what kind of a uh, size of your sample is naive? So I, I'm, that's what I'm working on at the moment a bit, is looking at um, classifying people as naive versus sophisticated. I'm looking at sort of the demographic data mm. um, 
and the some very rough estimates of people's incomes and mm. education levels. Uh, and I've also got data on sort of ethnicity. And I wanted to see if there's any, yeah, w which age groups seem to be having more naive behaviors. Mm. And at the moment for cancellation lags, it seems like people who are middle-aged versus young and old using sort of a, an age squared yeah. Robit model. Um, it, it seems to indicate that middle-aged people had the lower lower cancellation lags compared to the younger and older people. But on the flip side, people who had the least worthwhile memberships um, seem to it seemed to be the the youngest and older people um, had high, lower average attendance costs than the middle-aged people. So the middle-aged people were. More, seem to be more likely to have these gym memberships where they go maybe once or twice a month and then keep it rolling mm. compared to the younger and older people. Um, this is definitely work in progress. Yeah, um, These are very, very rough results they need to look into. But it, it, it would make sense in terms of how people experience perhaps my planning fallacy, but over the life cycle, it might be that, you know, people in their middle ages are more... Uh, prone to planning fallacy because they got possibly have more in their schedule to do, um, and they think that they can fit in the gym attendance here and there. Mm. But actually, if something comes along where um, they just throw it out of their schedule, compared to maybe younger or older people who maybe have a bit more spare time or more flexibility in their time to go to the gym. But then on the flip side, it would suggest that in terms of cancellation lags younger and older people are more prone to procrastination or some sort of uh, inefficiency in their financial decision-making. Yeah. Which, again, it, it would be... This would be intuitive, but I'm going to put, like, a very big caveat that this is work in progress. Yeah. Um, I don't want to um, suggest a result and then uh, end my signs end up flipping with more controls <laughs> or something. But, uh, again, the intuition's in there. We just see whether the data uh, do some robustness checks and uh, see if that backs it up. Mm. Cool. So, I mean, that, that was really interesting uh, to kind of hear um, the, the seminal study on gym membership mm. and where you kind of agree and where you disagree um, mm. with, with your results. Um, I guess the, the natural question to ask is, so what, right? You yeah. mentioned right at the very beginning that one of the reasons you came into economics was to uh, do a better good yeah. uh, other than helping uh, gyms get more yeah. money out of us. I'm uh, not going to lie. Gym <laughs> memberships are not where my interests <laughs> necessarily lie. Um, uh, yeah. Well, what kind of broader implications do, do these uh, findings have for society and policy in particular? Well, the, the undertone or the, the, what I've always had in the back of my mind while doing this is like how does this apply to other fee-based health behaviors? And the other thing I've, quite interested in is medication adherence mm. because this is another area where sort of, again people act in a, in a way that don't appear to make sense you have people are given medication to make them better from a certain illness or to alleviate symptoms but people are very prone to just not take their meds um, and again the, the explanations for this um, stem from similar things in terms of economics so that procrastination people thinking that they'll take their meds later but then just end up not taking them at all or um uh that that's that's the main sort of theory behind it in an economic sense um but there's also lots of other things going on so um people overestimating how good they're going to be at taking them or maybe over or underestimating how good they will be at taking it so there's there's some sometimes there's a an efficacy self-efficacy issue people are given prescriptions but don't believe from the get-go that they'll be able to stick to them mm. so you just never but they don't bother on on the flip side people might be very confident that they can adhere to a complicated uh medication scheme but it ends up not being the case and they should probably it might be worthwhile switching to a simpler um regimen uh, these are the sort of things that i think are where, yeah where this study sort of suggests is suggestive for um in the, in the terms of those behaviors and and what kind of solutions uh, would you kind of draw to to those problems so i guess mm. how precisely does uh what you found in the gym membership study relate to um how you might help people so better take their medications indeed so in, in, in similar to how people 
cancel like gym memberships it, it, when you make it more costly to do so people are less likely to do it mm. and so similar for medications in it's, it's more of a again a US based issue than necessarily in the UK um, but if you make it less costly to get your meds people are more likely to get their meds mm. um, this is not just in terms of money costs but this can also be in terms of time costs something that's quite uh, indicative of this I think is uh, I'm not sure which state this was done in but um, it, it's sort of like a you could look at it like a natural experiment with a treatment where um, a certain vaccination was made to be a legal necessity for certain uh, for kids to have mm. so in a state in the US they made it um, a legal requirement they get this vaccination and as a result the vaccination rate for this particular vaccine went up drastically as you'd expect but not only that the vaccination rates for other vaccines went up drastically mm. and the reason for this is probably once people are at the doctors they might as well get the yeah. other ones yeah. and i think that's probably similar to what we find in the uk is like even though a lot of uh, the vaccines the core regimen is free you have to actually set up the appointment and go Mm. And this, um, it, it it becomes sort of a, a le- an ethical, more of an ethical question about the how you make drugs like a legal requirement. But it, it more so in terms of if if you if you provide vaccinations in schools, parents are not likely to say no. They'll just go along, and their kids will get vaccinated. And um, by reducing the cost of getting vaccines, people aren't putting it off anymore. They just get it. Mm. Um, so that's that's like a, a more direct um, implication, I think. So it's so insensible that reducing the cost of these medications mm. would make it more likely for people to adhere to their plans. Yes. But is there ever a good reason to actually incentivize that kind of thing? Uh, the, it, it's a theory that people, if you, make, if you make drugs free, people won't value them and then uh, people don't take them. But I think this is not it's the, the counter effect is much stronger that if if you give people drugs, they'll be more likely to have them once they have them rather than imposing cost barriers to somehow provide like a greater valuation of them. Um, uh, that's yeah, I, I I don't think that the cost I think the cost barrier is, is usually what people cite in like surveys or why they don't take their drugs is because I couldn't afford it this month. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's a bit more damning than the, than the other way where you may be looking at medications of wastage but uh, um, it's something to consider but I think yeah, reducing its cost barriers is probably more important than the other way so it would make sense that in some cases incentivizing a certain kind of behaviour would make it more likely mm-hmm. but there's also a worry that there are these roundabout ways in which incentivizing some behaviour kind of devalues it and then makes it less likely and backfires. Could you just explain how that works? So I, I can't remember the names of the authors of the uh, the paper. It was Ignisi and Ignisi uh, and someone else. Um, have a quick Google on that one. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that, yeah, the, the Israeli study is, is interesting. Looking at, uh, it was for uh, kids in um, preschool I think, or primary school, and uh, parents were constantly not picking up their kids on time. So the school imposed a fine on uh, picking up their, their kids. And the theory was by p- placing a monetary value on uh, looking after their kids, they just treated it as a service rather than as a social expectation to pick up their kids. And therefore, people were more willing to pay, pay the fine and be late than to actually be on time. Uh, the other one was how you incentivize uh, charity fundraising in, in kids as well, in secondary school kids, I think. Um, it, those who uh, were paid per donation ended up seeing it more as like a, a job, I think was the theory, mm-hmm. while those who were paid slightly less in incentives for raising money uh, still believed in like the social value of what they were doing and actually put in more effort. Mm. The caveat on the, the primary school uh, study is I don't think the data exists anymore. I think it was lost, is this, this the story. Um, it's actually, I don't believe, <laughs> apparently, I think they lost the data. So actually verifying that result is uh, not 
doable anymore <laughs> because they lost the data. It's not to say the result is wrong, but it is, again, it goes into the long-running issues of replicability in social sciences, especially if you lose the data, you can't necessarily run give it to someone else to, uh, to check its robustness. Um, <laughs> so... So I guess one, one thing that this is kind of all hinting at is kind of the idea of nudges, right, to inform policy making. Mm. So rather than um, setting out rules such as um, requiring vaccinations to be uh, compulsory, um, making it easier for people to do so mm. by having them in schools um, and, and the like. There's also kind of um, an ethical debate about this kind of idea of paternal liberalism. Mm. Uh, do you have any, any thoughts about that, especially, I guess, in a developing context? Well, I think the it's something I thought about in terms of like you're you're sort of trying to manipulate people's free will, <laughs> isn't it? I think the the counter example I was uh, someone gave me is that uh, you know companies are already doing this. Yeah, companies are already abusing our biases already. So in in an effort to counter it, should the government step in in some way to uh, in in Acting in a good as a good actor versus mm. necessarily uh, um, a profit-making actor. <laughs> um, I think I think that argument sways me um, a bit. But yeah, I'm not sure. I can't think of much against it because in my mind, it's always it, it's a bit of a. I guess it's a logical argument where, like, if you if you look at the studies and be like, has this Im- increased vaccination rates and improved people's health? If yes, then good. Let's do more of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but the ethical concerns, indeed, uh, it's a tricky one. I haven't fully navigated it <laughs> myself as much as I could have. I guess one of the big takeaways from behavioral economics is that whenever you give someone a question, that question always has to be framed in a certain way, right? Indeed. And the framing really matters. It really matters. But given that it always has to be framed in a certain way, then why not frame it in a way that makes people's behaviours better for themselves, yeah, right? I, think I guess so. that's the thought of um, liberal paternalism. Yeah. Um, I find I, it hard to argue against. In the, yeah. yeah, good. So we've been talking about how we might use, um, how we might all apply all of this to policy, but... I was wondering, because I'm sure we're all familiar with, you know, signing up for some 30-day trial Mm. and then never getting around to cancelling it and ending up being charged for something that you have Mm. no use for, right? Are there any kind of nudges or tools or behavioural changes that we can use to make us make ourselves less like irrational. I wish I wish I had better <laughs> advice because despite studying many different types of behavioral biases, I'm still a sucker for all of them. <laughs> <laughs> the only thing I do now is just have great fear when I see uh, subscriptions being like, "Yeah, yes, yeah, sign up for this two-week free trial and uh, just give us your credit card details. You'll cancel later." I guess kind of the, the last question to, to wrap it all up is what are three books or papers that inspired you? Right. This is a tricky one. Um, the, the first one, um, I think I'd say, is the, uh, the Flo and Banerjee paper on uh, vaccinations in India, I believe. Um, that one's really interesting. Again, it's, it's speaking about sort of present bias and medication adherences. How do you get uh, those in uh, poorer lower income populations to uh, take their vaccinations which have huge sort of future benefit and it was a matter of providing lentils for each vaccination they took their kids to and then offering them a full set of plates for completing a regimen and that seemed to be enough to increase uh, you know vaccination rates significantly um, this was in opposition to other theories that oh yes that culturally mm. they just don't agree with sticking needles in your arm or um, or they just aren't very well educated on the future benefit of vaccinations. Worth well, noting, they just won the Nobel Prize, right? Indeed, they have just won the Nobel Prize for the sort of randomized controlled trial work. So it must be semi decent. Um, yeah. I think their their work is really great in this area. Like quite simple um, sort of solutions to development problems. Um, in in terms of the behavioral economics literature, it is quite vast there's no there's not really a standardized or textbook for behavioral economics bar one 
um, by Colin Camara, mm. who was my lab leader this <laughs> <laughs> summer. Um, I think his his behavioral game theory. He um, no, his work is really great. If you watch his TED talks um, about sort of how well um, pe- people are being game theorists, mm. you know, in in game theory, um, if you play the game like the the winner of the game is whoever uh, picks a number that is two thirds of the average. Mm. So the Nash equilibrium of this game would be if you run it, everyone knows the game and everyone knows each other's moves would be zero. Yeah. And this is what you see with a lot of people's answers who are obviously quite smart econ students, answer <laughs> zero, and they lose because not everyone is a perfect game theorist. So uh, in reality, it ends up being people think so one or two steps ahead in terms of game theory thinking, yeah. not necessarily infinite horizons. Um, however, uh, and, so, and there's also you know behavioral biases in, in game theory, which means you don't observe the Nash equilibrium um, that you would see in game theory. But it's interesting that on the flip side, monkeys are really great game theorists, better than <laughs> better than people are. So I think it's it, that's that's quite interesting. That's indicative of something in terms of like rationality that somehow um, monkeys and possibly other animals are better at game theory mm. than uh, than people are. So that that's uh, yeah, Colin Kamara's work um, definitely worth looking into, and O'Donoghue. Robin, uh, De La Vigna, um, in terms of all these sort of present bias uh, models and mm. time discounting, um, they're quite worth looking into. The final one, which is quite interesting, is a more sort of anthropological study of medication adherence. I think it's by Lawrence in 2010. Um, it's, it is titled Medication Adherence. Um, it, it provides just three case studies of why different individuals were not taking their meds. Um, so one case study was of a girl with asthma. Another was of a older woman uh, with quite a complicated medication you know, regime. And then uh, a middle-aged man with HIV having, having to take antiretrovirals. Mm. And it, it just, you know... It, we're quite reductionist in how we look at the data because we have to be, because we can only pick out so much uh, and we are making, you know, population-wide suggestions of behaviour when, you know, everyone's an individual. And I think this behaviour, uh, this sort of paper demonstrates that, you know, everyone's circumstances are very individual, the context for each individual. So um, means that they behave differently given certain situations. So, you know, policy or... Um, certain treatments will have a different effect on everybody mm. and I think that can sometimes be forgotten when you're looking at these sort of population studies um, so for example with the like the, the HIV antiretrovirals adherence um, the guy was like an investment banker having to take on a huge uh, like new partner or like a, a client and uh, he was tasked with leading this sort of a new team this client and it was recognized after this point his you know his markers for HIV skyrocketed every time he went to the doctor and suggesting he wasn't adhering to his um, his antiretrovirals and the doctor couldn't quite pinpoint why but he appeared quite down and withdrawn every time he went to the, the doctor's office so he did a bit more you know pursued a bit more questioning to see what was going out on and it turned out that you know he become very stressed and overworked with this new client and he was basically self-medicating with alcohol to be able to sleep because he just couldn't sleep anymore because mm. of the stress and as and as a result you know the ad- adherence to antiretrovirals obviously decreased because he was just forgetting to take them he had too much else on and um, and as a result you know his markers went up and it was just a matter of you know uh, advising that he see a psychologist get back onto a, a stable routine and sort of treat um, his stress and that would then lead to better, better mm-hmm. adherence and the medication adherence literature is is, is is fascinating because people have tried so much on these wide scales and they usually tend to be quite you know 
uh, uniform treatments like we'll give you a, an electronic pill bottle that rings a buzzer every time you need to go yeah. and that should remind you to take your pills and they usually see quite they usually see positive but small effects of all yeah. these things as you i think is because you know we're lacking the, a lacking a person personability yeah in those sort of things that doesn't account for individual behavior or individual reasons why people aren't adhering to medication mm. so that's why that paper is interesting <laughs> um, and I, th i thought it was a great one right Definitely. thank you tad so no much. problem thanks for having me that was tad's chesky homes on gym membership If you want to learn more about Tad's research and behavioral economics more generally, you can read the write-up that accompanies every episode at hearthisidea.com forward slash episodes forward slash Tad. There you will find a summary of our conversation as well as links to Tad's book recommendations, all the articles referenced and other further readings. If you have a minute, we would also greatly appreciate it if you could leave us a review on iTunes or whatever platform you are hearing us from. We're just starting out so any advice helps improve the show and others find out about us. If you want to support the show more directly, you can also leave us a tip by following the link in the description. Thank you for listening.